I'm Randy Cohen, and this is Person, Place, Thing. Get it! Here's a person, or maybe it's a thing, and not a pretty one. I went to Mount Penn Junior Senior High School in Reading, Pennsylvania, where our mascot was the Mountaineer, a comical hillbilly. Ragged overalls, corncob pipe, bare feet, you know, grinding Appalachian poverty. Hilarious, by which I mean unspeakably depressing. The sort of thing Nancy Eisenberg writes about in White Trash. I'm all for making fun of individuals and even groups. The question is, which ones and for what reasons we should assail the rich and powerful, not bully the weak and afflicted. It's one thing for the slave to mock the master, quite another for the master to mock the slave. People resent that sort of thing. People in West Virginia who end up voting for Donald Trump, which only makes matters worse and not just for them. People are particularly interesting when they speak not about themselves, but something they care about. My guests talk about a person, a place, and a thing they find meaningful. This time that guest is Ruth Messenger, for decades a political leader in New York, on the city council and as Manhattan Borough president. She currently works with American Jewish World Services. We spoke at Columbia University's Narrative Medicine Program, directed by Rita Charon, about Ruth's person, a minor, and to me, unknown, character from the book of Exodus. The idea is that Moses was a leader. He was an unwilling leader. He kept saying, if you read it carefully, why me? Um, but he was the leader. And he got the message that the way to do, the only way to deal with Pharaoh was to organize the Jews and get them to march out of Egypt. The part of the story that I like is that when they got to the Red Sea, which was right there, this huge body of water. And he kind of essentially is reported as sort of saying to God, now what? And God basically is reported as saying like, why are you talking to me? I told you what to do and my people are down there doing it. And so the person is a man named Nachshon who has no other claim to fame except that he was supposed to be following Moses. And he heard that the message is go into the water and you'll be saved. And the water was all there. But while Moses was having his debate with God, Nachshon walked into the Red Sea. And when the Red Sea got up to his nose, the seas parted. So for me, this is a lesson in what does or doesn't make a leader. Moses is a famous leader. But there are moments where he is a little panicked, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And leaders are only leaders if people are willing to follow them. And in a sense, Nachshon was following the advice he'd been given by his leader, which is we're going to go into the sea and it will be okay. And he took that risk. So even when the leader has doubts, yes. Nachshon says, I, I'm sticking with the plan. Right. You know, this, it's a great story because we know the outcome. It all works out fine. You know, the sea does part and everybody passes on dry land. But you could read this in a darker way oh, as yes. blind obedience to a leader. I mean, he was up to his nose before the seeds actually part. Ought we not be a little more? It's not a democratic story. <laughs> well, no, but, but I see the, the democratic part of it for me is, I guess, it's both risk-taking and faith. Yes, risk-taking and not faith. Not done talking yes. at the religious level. He had been told, this is the scheme, this is what's going to work. 
And you see Moses correctly, I think, exactly what you're saying. Moses as a leader saying, wait a minute, are you sure you told us to go this way? There yeah, seems to be yeah. a lot of water there. So he's having a moment of doubt, and he's checking it out. But some, in this case, Nachshon, had a little more faith. I yeah. think this is going to work. Um, well, and step forward. What I like about it, too, is that it, it, it gets at this idea that leadership, even when there are powerful leaders, rely on enthusiastic supporters. Exactly. That, that, that motivation isn't just top down. No, no, and, and I think of you as not a top-down kind of person. Oh, that's for sure. You're, but the point is you have to have mobilized people so they're ready for the long haul, which is what we're all experiencing right now, okay. um, is how do you get out there, when do you get out there, yeah. and, and taking some risks. And you know, you said, it's true, the story has a happy ending, so that's- Happy-ish. We happy are Jews, you know. Yes, but, but uh, <laughs> fair enough. Happy-ish. It's funny that the Old Testament's full of so many people who God says, hey, I have a job for you, and they go, oh, no, thank you. I'll be, I'll be inside a whale if you need exactly. me. Exactly. You know? No, but um, I think that's, but that's exactly, but that's a whole piece of... People re reject that position. But I You think, haven't. I know, but let's say that one of the things I like about those stories, although there are a lot of them, is that a totally certain leader who never asks a question is likely to end up doing lots of things that are a little bit out of desperation, like a leader who a little like, bit foolhardy. Who thought Andrew Jackson was alive during the like Civil War, like that, that yeah. someone like that, just hypothetically, or that just Frederick Douglass was still alive, Fred, yes, who exactly. uh, had no doubts, of, no doubts at all. Right, um, so we see at, lots of examples to, of leadership with no doubts, and that turns out also to be wrong. So there's so, this interesting mix of you need leaders, but they ought to be people who have some doubt, some capacity for analysis, but in this story, the leader was getting a little too anxious and someone else stepped forward instead and took the risk. So you think God is deliberately hiring leaders <laughs> who have doubts? Well, the, I mean, the Bible's full of them. Yes. I hadn't quite thought of it till yeah. you- No, till there you, are a lot of them, and it's like, I'm not uh, quite up to this task. And right, that's, but, that's a good message. It's like, everybody here should be taking a leadership step. But if you do it with a little bit of self-doubt, like, I'm not really sure I'm the person. Maybe right. I could get someone to do it with me. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for this step, but it looks like there are no options. That's infinitely better than I know just what to do. I'm running down 168th Street no matter what. Well, a certain humility yes. is, is called for. But I wonder, I think of that in, well, because of where we are, that it, in some kinds of positions seem to be that's encouraged. Um, I would say, in, and please, you all know more than me, so correct me, in, in the diagnosing of, of maladies, um, humility comes into play, because we can't be sure, what can we know? But you don't want a surgeon, and, or surgeons are not famous for humility. <laughs> well, so I think, um, I think that that's the mix, and certainly, I don't, know, I don't know what everyone here does, but I know a lot about Rita and narrative medicine, and I think that's a piece of the whole issue is like, Look at all the details, look at the human side, get the full story because that helps you make wiser decisions, it helps all the people involved make wiser choices. When I talk at greater length about, about the work that American Jewish World Service supports, I'm always telling stories. Here's what this woman was willing to do. Here's what this person said that mobilized others to, to step forward. And it's those stories about what, what, when is it and what is it that gets someone to take that step? Without those steps, there's no progress. Right. And it's, without humility, there are too many risks. Oh, we have to find a balance. I hate finding a balance. <laughs> um, uh, is optimism necessary to make change? 
Um, well, I, you know, I'm going to answer that personally. That's what that's what makes me, me. That's what allows me to do my work. So you you would describe yourself as an optimist. Oh yes, I'm these are terrible times. We I'm live an in. unbelievable optimist. Are you really? Yes. I think to some degree, optimism, or if there's some scale of optimism, is really um, inherent. I'm not sure you can make people okay. optimistic. So that's what I'm saying. Is I think some of it is just comes from you. Some of it comes from having seen things work. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm an optimist. I was raised by a family that kept telling me that change was possible mm -hmm. and that we owed it both religiously and as immigrants to New York two generations ago to give something back. Um, and that we were that that was our mandate was to go out there and do what needed to be done. And um, having done that for most of my life in a variety of different settings, I can name lots of times when it worked and when change happened. Well, if you're going to, I don't, I could drag us into a note of, of bleakness, but I'd rather end on, on a note of optimism. So we'll take just a moment and we'll be right back. This is Person, Place, Thing. I'm Randy Cohen talking to Ruth Messenger about her place. Well, this goes back to my city council days. I was privileged to represent the west side, but the place is not the west side. The place is under the old elevated train at 149th Street and 3rd Avenue. You know, on the city council, I was um, pretty determined about what I believed and where I thought I could be leading people. And I think I really thought more than I should have that I know what I think about every issue. You know, I had, I had, I, I knew what I'd done in the civil rights movement. I knew what I thought about the women's rights movement. I was uh, active during the fight against the Vietnam War. It's like I, I know who I am, and then I'm privileged to represent a great neighborhood. But really, my votes and my ideas are really going to come out of like what I believe. And so, all of a sudden, um, health-related to be sure, there was this. Um, resolution proposed, but the proposal was that the city council should support free needle exchange, that addicts should be able to bundle up their needles and be, take them to a medical or like, you know, sort of a city dock type place, although those didn't exist then, but like a storefront, legally turn them in and get clean needles. This is partly a response to the AIDS crisis. Yes. And um, this was well, this was definitely in response to the AIDS crisis and the you know the discovery that that um, AIDS HIV AIDS was really largely a question of fluid transmission bodily fluid transmission. So here's the idea, but like so that it would be better if they used clean needles. But in my mind, this was like, what are they talking about? Like, drug addiction is a serious problem. Too many people in the city are addicted to heroin, and as a legislator, I'm basically going to be enabling their habit. Like, you know, they have dirty needles are bad for them, so give them clean needles? Why? So that they can stay on heroin longer and shoot up more? So I, in some meeting, I said, oh, no, I'm against that. And I want to say that I, I love the fact that the advocates and activists who were behind this measure had enough faith in me that instead of like throwing me over the boat, they off the off the boat, they decided, okay, she's educable. <laughs> That's so, so sweet. So they came to me and they said, um, 
We could discuss this with you right now, but we'd actually like you to come someplace with us. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure. And they said, come to 149th Street and 3rd Avenue at 11.30 at night. Mm -hmm. Because heroin, I mean, being an addict was illegal, and needle exchange was illegal. And so they operated as a clandestine operation wow, at a time so when they thought that police and detectives would probably rather sleep than be chasing them down um, 149th Street. Wow. So I went to this place, and it was all well organized. There was just a very small card table with two chairs behind it and this huge stack of packs of clean needles and rubber bands. And then they took a folding chair from the table and they set it up about 20 feet away. I really wasn't quite sure what was going on. But they said to me, you sit there. So I went and sat there at 11.30 at night. And um, every time uh, as addicts came literally out of the darkness with their dirty needles, and each addict who came up and put the dirty needles down and was given a pack of clean needles, they said some version of that lady over there probably that white lady over there, um, is a member of the city council. Can you go and explain to her what you're doing here? And um, it really didn't take very long, I'm happy to say. But like five or six different people came over and said, so let me tell you about this. I hear that this disease is transmitted with dirty needles. I'd hate my habit, but I haven't been able to find a way to kick my habit. But I don't want to be sharing dirty needles, because then I could get a life-threatening disease, or I know I'm HIV positive and I don't want to give this to somebody that I'm doing drugs with. And I was like, OK. First of all, you were 100% wrong. And you have to learn how to be open and listen, and listen to people whose lives, what, three miles from the west side, are totally different than yours, and listen to people talking about what it's like, and listen to the unbelievable humanity in each of these voices, there were people who were most concerned, not just about their health, but about the health of their life partner or their closest friend in the middle of desperation. We don't want also to be trading disease, so we're willing to do something illegal, because mm -hmm. they knew they could get arrested. Um, and I think that that is the moment. I can cite some other ones after I got my global job. But that was one, an early moment in my adult life where I said, Oh my God, you can be totally wrong on an issue because you don't know nearly enough about it. So try to learn how to shut up and listen. Wow. Um, it, the number of people who change their mind on a position, I, I believe I have the current statistics, it's about what, zero, right? Isn't zero the current number? Um, it's really, really hard for anyone to do that. Um, and and I, I think it takes a certain kind of courage and it takes a sort of confidence in your fundamental, that your fundamental underlying principles are sound. You can feel the weight lifted off your shoulders to be unambiguously wrong. But why is it so hard to do that? Oh, I think we're all just, just, we're really sort of schooled against it. Like, you know, you're smart, you're good, you're right, try to be right all the time. Um, instead of, you're going to be wrong a lot of the time, and what's going to make you less wrong is learning how other people live, learning to listen. But I like that the people that, that uh, got you to change your mind didn't argue with you. They took you somewhere. They, it's, well, it's narrative medicine, isn't it? Yes. They, they showed you something. They told you a, didn't just tell you a story. They showed you a story. You had, they gave you a direct, immediate well, experience. Well, the organizers did that and took me someplace, which is why the place is important, because I remember it still, yeah. and it's a long time ago. 
And I remember being a little frightened. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was an odd place to be in the middle of the night doing something that I was told was illegal. Fear focuses the mind. <laughs> but the point is that they thought to, to make it come alive. But I also want to give credit to the people who stepped over from the table. They had no idea who they were talking to. They were not used to, you know, it's a bit of a generalization, but I don't think they were wildly used to sort of articulating who they are and what was important in their lives. And they were making, in some, with some language or other, they were each making this incredible um, admission, mm -hmm. which is, I am an addict, right. and I can't figure out how to stop. So people speaking directly and intimately about their own lives, they weren't theorizing. Right. They were telling you something they knew and lived. We'll take a moment. We'll be right back. This is Person, Place, Thing. I'm Randy Cohen talking to Ruth Messenger about her thing, her bicycle. My, my daughter-in-law mentioned to me that there was a Boston to New York AIDS ride. You raise money and you ride for four or five days. And um, she said, we should all do it. And I said, oh, that sounds great. It's training for my 60th birthday. That's what I'm going to do is ride from Boston to New York. And then I enrolled, and then I started raising money, and then I started practicing biking. And then I contacted my daughter and my daughter-in-law and said, so how's your biking coming? And they said, oh, we're not doing it. <laughs> so um, I did it. But my son, my oldest son, whom Rita knows very well, um, joined me in that ride. She has joined me in most of the long rides I've done. I don't do long rides anymore. Wait, so your first real ride was from Boston to New York? No, no, no. I rode as a kid. I mean, I rode my whole childhood um, um, in... Um, Connecticut, uh, where, both my, I, where we were in the summer and both my parents worked, the only way I could get to work or to play was on a bike. Yeah, me too, so, when I was a kid. Yeah, I know, but great. none of that was long distance biking and none of that was like biking to stay in shape and none of that was... Just so, what you did, because you were a kid, that's did. how you got around. Right, so that's how I got around. And I had, for there was a whole period of time um, in the middle of my complicated career that you were hearing about from Rita, where I biked in New York to a job in lower Manhattan and biked back. And I stopped that because the bike ride uptown from um, Houston Street to 87th Street, it, it occurred to me that I spent that entire half hour every day breathing in truck exhaust, and that that was probably not the best thing for my health. So I stopped that. And then I sort of, then I didn't do too much biking. And then this came along, and I thought, okay, this is serious. You could train for it, you could get into it. And I did, and I did several long rides, and I still do. And so on any day that the temperature is over 50, I bike on this bike once around Central Park in the morning. Cool. Um, um, but anyway, yeah. it's my bike, and I ride it in the morning, and I do do some long rides, and so it's my thing. And I hear you're doing a ride on uh, Sunday. Sunday, I'm doing the five-borough bike ride, which if you're a serious biker, you don't like the five-borough bike ride because there are literally... 32,000 people out there in their bike. And so the people I know who are serious bikers and fast bikers and like, they're like, they're those crazy, that's just like a lunatic. From my point of view, it's like a great celebration of biking, but even more, it's a great celebration of New York. And best of all, they close the, all of the right. roads to Car traffic. Free. So you're on the FDR drive and you're on the BQE and there are no cars and you're just biking along. Well, it's sense. a utopian vision. And, and I think it's, it's, I'm a cyclist too. And, and I used to do the fiber bike 
bike tour, and yeah, I'm now the kind of people you just had scorn for. I don't, I don't do that ride anymore. I do a different kind of riding, but there's a hundred ways to ride. They're all great. And it's one of the ways New York is unambiguously better, I think. Um, I came here in 1973, and, and, and riding in that those truck fumes was unpleasant and dangerous. And because of a great public servant named Jeanette Sadie Khan, we now have this wildly improved infrastructure where you can bike safely on protected bike lanes. We have the Greenway on the well, I and, biked up here and today. And I'm a city bike user. Because city, city bike, bike is, is divine, fantastic. Because I could leave this bike so I don't have to keep locking it up on the street. And I can walk two blocks either way from my house get a bike, take it, I'm mostly just going from the west side to Midtown or, uh -huh. to, or whatever, and ride it for like it may say 15 or 20 minutes, and then park it. And for those of you who aren't using City Bike yet, it's the most perfect app that I know. It's never wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, some apps don't work. But you can go on the app and see exactly how many bikes there are at either stand right. and exactly how many parking spaces there are where you're going to. So it's wonderful. And City Bike allows you to bike and drink, which I think is one of its great <laughs> virtues, that you're going to go meet friends for dinner, right? Or you're going to meet someone for a drink, and I want to bike down, but I don't, want, I don't believe in drunken biking. You don't want to bike back. With City Bike, you can just bike one way, leave your bike, take the train home. It's so civilized. Anything that promotes sociability and drinking, I'm for, right? Why would you? Um, do you think, do you have people you bike with? Because I have a group of friends I bike with, and I think one of the things I like about it is it's sociable. Um, the basic answer to that is no, because I'm slow. Um, so I like- There's people at every, every I know, speed. But I like biking, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that's the other thing I would say about the Central Park biking, um, which is also true for me about skiing, which I'm an adequate intermediate skier. Those are the two things I do in which all the thoughts about all the other stuff we've been talking about leave my head. And I'm just enjoying nature. I'm, I think Central Park is the world's best invention. Um, but I'm looking at flowers, how different they look today than yesterday. Yeah, look at I was, the, I've been in know, the park every so, day this week. Yeah, exactly. On my and bike. So, yeah. And so all of that. So, so for me, that's why it's important. Um, we, we did a show with uh, Tom Farley um, down the block. And he used to be the, you all know, he used to be the uh, health commissioner of New, of New York City. And he's one of the guys I cycle with. Um, and he sees it very much as a public health thing. Um, do, does that seem reasonable to you, narrative medicine things? that It's a form of transportation, but it's, it's active, it's non-polluting. Um, for him, it's sociable, um, and, and that it's, it's, it's inextricable from his view of what public health well, should also, be. Also, if in New York, if you're doing what I'm doing on city bike, which is these short hops, it's actually faster. If you're, if you're going, um, it's not faster than the subway, but as we all know, there are lots of places where you need what you need to do is not subwayable. Right. Yeah. And you know, I mean, like I so I live at, on the west side, and I teach one morning a week at Hunter, and I know that the bike is twice as fast as the bus. The other thing I really like about biking in New York is it's all bound up in the history of feminism. As does everybody know about this? So in eighteen nine in the eighteen nineties, there was a huge bike craze in New York. It was this giant fad, um, and. Um, one of the things that distinguished it is um, women did it too. And that's when bloomers came in, because um, it was more comfortable biking cl uh, clothing. And here's what, uh, I'll read you one thing. This is what Susan B. Anthony said about cycling right around this time. She says, 
Let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. Oh my God, so I need it's that you. quote from you, but I need that quote from you because one of our many, many organizations that we partner with in India, which is Girls Fighting to Change the Norm of Early Child Marriage, that group of girls has formed a bike group. And they get on bikes and they bike through the streets of Mumbai talking about women's emancipation. Oh, I want their jersey. Uh, join me in thanking Hannah Reed and especially Ruth Messenger. This episode of Person, Place, Thing was produced with the Columbia University Narrative Medicine Program and JCC Manhattan with generous support from Zabars and Zabars.com, the Epicurean Haven on the Upper West Side, now shipping to 50 states in Puerto Rico, and sponsored by WAMC, Northeast Public Radio, in partnership with Humanities New York. The featured musical performer is Hannah Reed. Robert Ald is the recording engineer. Matt Temkin is the editor. Our theme music is Hidden Charms, written by Willie Dixon, performed by Howlin' Wolf. I'm Randy Cohen. <laughs>